Hello from Ellensburg, Washington, USA. This is the Nick Zentner Geology Podcast, Episode 41, The Demise of the Kula Plate. Thanks for listening. Well, this sounds like a different topic than last time, but it's not. It's a continuation of fleshing out a new lecture and a new set of ideas involving this business about uh, intersecting a spreading ridge with the coast of North America and the kinds of magmas that are created as a result. So a real quick um, visit to our last episode to get us up to speed. I was talking about a number of people and a number of concepts that I admitted, I just re-listened to the episode, by the way, it's been a couple weeks, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, I admitted in that episode that I was having a hard time visualizing some of the detail. Well, I've made progress, and um, some of it is uh, quite clear in my mind now, and of course, uh, there's new ideas that I'm fuzzy about, but it's all in the name of progress, and I'm hoping just to uh, lay this one down and show you where I am currently, and hopefully um, you feel a connection to what's going on, uh, almost participating in a weird way. So a um, uh, couple of housekeeping things. I mentioned Jenda Johnson, and I've heard from a number of you saying, you talked about Jenda Johnson, but I can't find her animations. You said just to look for Iris on YouTube. Uh, yeah, I, I needed to be more clear on that. So there's a YouTube channel called Iris Earthquake Science. I-R-I-S, that's all uppercase, then Earthquake Science. And you'll find more than 100 videos that Jenda has created. There's other stuff there as well. But uh, that's how to get uh, into the world of Jenda. And I was talking about Jenda last time because she kindly offered to uh, make an animation for something that I was working on. And... Um, that's really how we can start this episode, because Jenda did spend a couple days uh, with this idea of jumping the trench west. Do you recall from the last episode the idea that you have a, uh, a volcanic arc, a line of volcanoes at the coast because of a, a trench, and we said there was a set, a set uh, distance between the trench and the uh, volcanic arc of, let's say, 150 miles. And so if we bring in a bunch of exotic terrain material, we change the position of the trench, therefore we kill the old volcanic arc and we make a new one. So my idea when going to Jenda was to create some kind of cartoonish thing, maybe even with a green chalkboard look and a, and a yellow set of lines in, indicating chalk. Um, but um, instead, Jenda kind of uh, wanted something similar to her look, which is, a, you know, an actual plate tectonic cross-section animation. And as she was trying to do that jumping the trench thing, she started reading some science papers and got some other science papers from colleagues, and she started to get a bad feeling, like, I'm not even sure this is real, man. You know, am I really making something that's an accurate thing, this jumping the trench business? And um, I couldn't quite come up with the specifics in the Pacific Northwest to back up what I was uh, cartoonishly putting together. So I basically said, um, uh, Jenda, just want you just kind of be on hold for a while. Can you go to other projects? Uh, I need to read some more. I need to communicate with more geologists. I need to have a, a clearer picture of what I think I want to say with this topic. 
and um, you know, Kula plate and Farallon plate and and uh, this this non-arc magmas, which was the point of the last episode. And I've stumbled into some new, very specific things. And let's get started with it right now. So the point is, we're going to go back to Genda in just a bit, and by we I mean me. Uh, I'm going to go back to Genda, but next week I think, with a very specific request for a very specific animation. And I feel much more comfortable than I did a few weeks ago when I was uh, kind of fleshing things out. And Jenda's kind of rough animation got me rolling in this new direction. She had the Idaho Batholith, the Idaho Batholith in her animation, in her rough animation. Now, some of you know that Batholiths are more, um, more or less just a, a big batch of magma. So there's the Sierra Nevada batholith, there's the Coast Range batholith in British Columbia, and there's the Idaho batholith in central Idaho. I'm talking about the Sawtooths of Idaho or the Stanley Basin or the Sun Valley area, um, those places. Riggins on one side, McCall on one side, um, Ketchum on the other side. Okay, central Idaho, the Sawtooths, just think that, for the Idaho batholith. And I liked the way that Idaho Basilisk looked on Jenda's rough animation, and so I kind of went in that direction. I said, um, hang on, Jenda, I'm going to look into this Idaho story a little bit more and see if I can't go back that far in time to put this together. And that's really where I am. So let's, let's go ahead. Um, the title of this podcast episode is The Demise of the Kula Plate. And one of the headlines of this episode is the fact that what I always assumed was the Farallon plate, I'm now realizing was not the frickin' Farallon plate, man. And in the literature, it's casual worth geologists, apparently. They just kind of say Farallon, even though they're not technically meaning the Farallon plate. I mean, it sounds kind of sloppy, but there's so many different reconstructions of what those old ocean plates looked like what their sizes were, what their vectors were, in other words, what direction those ocean plates were moving, that it's kind of been until recently just kind of a casual, you know, Farallon and friends, you know? <laughs> like, you know, I suppose somebody's figured it out, but I haven't. We'll just call it Farallon. <clears throat> well, that's an issue with us because this spreading ridge subducting beneath the Pacific Northwest about 55 million years ago is a spreading ridge between two plates. To the north of that spreading ridge long ago is the Kula plate, and to the south of the spreading ridge is the Farallon plate. So my first... <clears throat> Boy, I should have had some water before I started this. Sorry. The first uh, set of ideas involves uh, creating a volcanic arc in Idaho, and it's the Kula plate that is subducting to create those volcanoes in Idaho. <coughs> now, how do we know that? Well, uh, if you recall late in the episode last time, I, I shared with you what we think is true now, that this spreading ridge is intersecting the west coast of North America down in Mexico 100 million years ago, and then that spreading ridge intersection with the west coast of North America is working its way north through time. 
I'll repeat it from last time. Spreading ridges in Mexico, let's say 90 million years ago. Spreading ridge is intersecting Southern California, let's say 80 million years ago. Spreading ridge, by the time we get to 55 million years ago, is slipping beneath the Pacific Northwest. And by 45 million years ago, the spreading ridge is intersecting the west coast of North America, north of the border in Canada. Well, the spreading ridge is the boundary between Farallon to the south and Kula to the north. So if we've got the spreading ridge all the way down in Mexico, it's impossible for us to have the Farallon plate subducting beneath the Pacific Northwest. We're not going to get to the Farallon we're not going to get the Farallon plate up into the northwest at all until, you know, 60 million years ago. So, it's the Kula plate that is slipping beneath North America and generating volcanoes. And let's go ahead and call it a volcanic arc. There's a volcanic arc in central Idaho between 98 and 53 million years ago. That's a lot of time. And there's a new researcher by the name of Rich Gashnig, who's now uh, on the East Coast, but he was out at Washington State for a while and has uh, throughout the, the, from 2010 to 2000, I don't know, 18, I guess, he created a number of scientific papers with some high precision dates for the rocks of the Idaho Basilith. And we now have a bunch of new information about the details of how that Basilith was put together. There's some stories there that I don't totally know and I haven't uh, connected with Rich yet by email, but let's just go ahead and call that the Idaho Volcanic Arc with a subduction story of the Kula Plate. Okay, you with me? Now, with this first pass of the story, um, let's just continue with that thought. So we have our volcanic arc in Idaho with subduction of the Kula Plate until 53 million years ago, and then suddenly that stops. The volcanic arc in Idaho shuts off. And between 53 and 44 million years ago, there's no volcanic arc. There's no obvious magmas from an, a well-behaved line of coastal stratovolcanoes. We have to jump to 44 million years ago, and yes, we have to jump to the west to start the Cascade volcanoes in their present position. So again, with this first pass of the story, this is the new way that I'm telling this story, line of stratovolcanoes in central Idaho, and by the way, that goes all the way from Canada down to Mexico, but let's just, let's just focus on Idaho at our latitude. Stratovolcanoes line in Idaho up until 53 kill those volcanoes, wait 9 million years, and then start up this line of stratovolcanoes 44 million years ago in Washington. So the meat of this lecture, the main menu of this, le this, this lecture, is this window of time between 53 and 44 million years ago, that 9 million year time frame. What's going on during that 9 million years of, we can think of it as quiet if you want. In other words, no arc activity. Okay, well, we dabbled in this last time. Do you recall? I shared with you uh, data from Jeff Tepper, University of Puget Sound. And Jeff and his students, uh, I don't have to repeat all this, do I? You can just listen to the last episode. He found that interesting trend 
uh, of ages of magmas from northeast Washington to southwest Washington. What was the trend? Northeast to southwest. What were the ages in the trend? 52 million year old magmas in northern Idaho and northeast Washington, getting down to 44 million year old magmas that are in southwestern Washington. How does that fit into our story? That's our quiet spot. That's our window of non-arc activity. And then you're like, well, hold on. I thought you just said it's a quiet time. Well, it's a quiet time as far as arcs are concerned. As far as subduction, creating magmas coming up from a subduction zone and creating a volcanic arc. That's the quiet part. But we are getting magmas coming to the surface. They're non-arc magmas. How can we explain this sweep of magmas? I asked that last time. I wasn't specific last time. I'm specific now. <coughs> We're going to call those non-arc magmas the chalice magmas. Okay, this is a departure now and one that I'm quite excited about. There is a town called Chalice, Idaho. C-H-A-L-L-I-S. Chalice. And there are some volcanics in central Idaho. This is just to the east of the Idaho Bathleth, called the Chalice Volcanics. Uh, quick aside, little, little interruption here. Uh, I think I've mentioned before that I went to graduate school in Pocatello, Idaho, of all places. Idaho State University. Uh, there, that's a whole story how I ended up there and, and how I knew so little when I arrived and how I knew so much by the time I left. It was a three-year window of time. We're talking about windows of time now. This is me in the late 1980s, and uh, my time at Idaho State University was uh, absolutely wonderful um, for a bunch of reasons. But the point is, as I was finishing up there and getting a master's degree in geology, all my buddies were going to the gold industry. Some were going to Elko, Nevada. Some were going to Chalice, Idaho. And I remember visiting some of those cats who were already up there, and they're living in a trailer, you know, and they're working real hard, and the price of gold is real high. And uh, so many of us were going to the gold world uh, that it seemed likely I was going to do the same thing. But it got to the point where a couple friends had already put my name in and said, you know, this guy's probably coming too, so let's uh, create a job for him. So I was thinking seriously about the chalice area and the, the lava flows that were there, the volcanic deposits that were there, and the gold. Well, I didn't go that route. Um, I took a job in Ohio uh, right out of school teaching at Miami University and uh, have been in education ever since. So I never did go to the gold field. But the point is, that chalice area uh, has gold. Okay, here's the biggest thing I'm excited about currently. If we expand our horizon and don't just think of the chalice magmas as being right there at Chalice, Idaho, but instead survey the Pacific Northwest we can find an incredible series of magmas that are in this time window of 52 to 44 million years old. They're bimodal, 
meaning they've got lots of different kinds of silica contents. We can get rhyolites, andesites, basalts. We can get gabbros, diorites, granites. We can get things in between. And many of those magmas that we're going to call the chalice magmas have gold associated with them. So let's slow down and really try to just survey what areas I'm talking about. And I'm hoping that you'll get as excited as I am. In other words, we're talking about Tepper's um, volcanics in Washington. Let's start with Washington. Um, I have drafted a couple maps with coloring, uh, with, with colored pencils, by the way, out in my sun porch. And uh, let me give you some specifics about where Tepper has collected. And yes, I'm calling these the chalice magmas, essentially. Uh, Medical Lake, <laughs> you know where that is? Just west of Spokane, right off of I-90, right by the uh, state hospital. There's some granite that was dated at 48 million years old by Tepper. He's got some new chemistries on that. Uh, Trapper Peak up in the panhandle of Idaho, 52 million years old. I'm just going to give you a specific spot. Sherman Pass, where State Route 20 goes between Kettle Falls and Republic. He's got a... a, a Magma that's 50 million years old, another one that's 52 million years old. Um, Moses Mountain, uh, north of Nespelum, I think that's how you pronounce that. I don't know that area very well. 49 million years old, 51 million years old. Uh, Keller Butte, uh, on the, just north of the Keller Ferry, as you cross the Columbia and head up towards Keller, uh, up in the reservation. Uh, 51 million years old. I'll give you a couple more examples. Uh, he's got some 46 million year old stuff near Orondo, where you climb up to Waterville. You're just out of the basalts there. Uh, I'll give you one more. There's some uh, granite just north of Chelan on that butte just north. So the point is, I, I now have a, a specific uh, visit, uh, in my mind at least, to uh, careful places uh, in northern Washington and northeastern Washington in particular. But it, the, the excitement to me is it goes beyond Washington. And I've been, uh, if you go to the Nick Zentner YouTube page, the YouTube channel, um, you'll see uh, a 15-minute video where I sat at the kitchen table last week, right before the three-day weekend, and just wanted to get this stuff down before I, I left. Uh, and... Um, and then shared that 15-minute video, uh, kind of sharing my ideas about the, the, the subduction of the spreading ridge and this rollback, which we're about to talk about. And anyway, I've gotten good feedback from a bunch of my geology buddies, and they say, hey, yeah, you can call it the chalice magmas if you want. And the chalice magmas are all over the place. It's not just a northeastern Washington story. You cross the border into... British Columbia, they're the Kamloops magmas. Same thing, same vintage, non-arc magmas. You go back to Idaho, yes, there's some chalice magmas that overprint in the Idaho Bathleth. There's some chalice magmas to the east of that. Uh, suddenly, we're in Wyoming. The Absaricas are volcanics, part of this chalice magma batch. Basil Tickoff in, in uh, Wisconsin says... Uh, Devil's Tower in eastern Wyoming is chalice magma age, even into the Dakotas with, I guess, the Black Hills. I need to follow up on that. 
The point is we have this absolutely crazy, weird chapter, 52 to 44, million years old, and my old advisor at Idaho State says, uh, be careful now, you, you, you have to be north of 42 degrees latitude to find those magmas, those chalice magmas, those quote-unquote chalice Kamloops magmas. But the point is, that is a regional story that, that has fired me up, and I'm most excited because there's gold associated with damn near every one of those batches. From Republic Washington to Liberty Washington to Wenatchee Washington to the Absaricas in Wyoming to the Chalice Volcanic Field, all those places, and, and B.C. as well, which I don't know a damn thing about, embarrassingly, there's gold associated, there's precious metals associated, copper, silver, with all those guys, with all those non-arc magmas. So I don't uh, pretend to be an economic geologist. I, I don't probably won't be able to do much more with the gold than that. But I love that kind of regional storytelling. And it all fits with this business of, we are jumping the trench, by the way. You know, that original idea of taking a trench and a volcanic arc and then jumping it to the west on a, a gross scale that is, those are kind of the bookends to our story with these chalice magmas. We got the Idaho Arc, and then we jump to the Cascade Arc. But it's not a sudden jump, and that's really the main focus here. Uh, what else can I do with this episode? Um, I do have a couple other thoughts. Um, yes, I do. Let me find a couple diagrams I drew for myself. So I was never specific in the last episode about what our tectonic explanation is for this sweep. So now that we realize the chalice magmas are a weird episode, uh, and we then realize that the magmas, at least in Washington, the chalice magmas in Washington, are not just randomly blooping up to the surface. There's this pattern that the oldest of the chalice magmas are in the northeastern corner of the state, and then we work our way to the southwest. Tepper's model for that is a rollback. So this is going to be tough verbally, but get, let's, let's give it the old college try, shall we? There's a concept of rolling back a subducting plate. So we can all picture, can't we, uh, uh, an ocean plate that is diving beneath another plate. And there's a certain angle to that ocean plate that's diving beneath. And uh, I'm not even sure it matters if it's, if it's quote-unquote flat slab subduction, meaning that the angle is very low, or a steep angle of subduction, which means just like, like it sounds. Um, but... The point is to have a rel relatively dramatic rolling back of the plate implies that you're going to break the plate. You're actually going to take the ocean plate that's diving beneath a continent, in this case the Kula plate, and something dramatic is going to happen to cause a part of that Kula plate to break off from the rest of it. And I'll get right to it. Teffer's model suggests two different breaks, two different episodes of breaking the Kula plate. His original um, break-off of a piece of the Kula plate is fuzzy to me, uh, and he's got the date of that happening 
53 million years ago. So in other words, we shut off the Idaho arc because we break the Kula Plate about 53 million years ago, and presumably that break-off is happening further to the east. However, North America has been drifting to the west since that time, so maybe it doesn't have to be that far to the east. Anyway, uh, break-off of the Kula Plate simply means that we're going to subduct this plate but we're going to have the older part of the plate that's deeper down break off for some reason. And that model exists because to get our chalice magmas to the surface, in other words, if you've been waiting for like, how are you supposed to get magmas if you don't have subduction? That's where this model of breaking off a plate comes into play. Because when you break an ocean plate down below, you allow hot mantle to rise to the surface or get closer to the surface and create shallow magmas uh, without actually subducting a plate. So the, in other words, you're creating a window where that broken piece of the plate has left the rest of the plate. Boy, tough to do this verbally. Uh, maybe you can go to that YouTube channel and look at that, uh, those series of diagrams I have for you. Uh, but the point is, if you do break the plate, then the remaining part of the Kula plate is no longer tethered to that old part. And so the kind of uh, younger part of the Kula plate is going to start to roll back or sag down. How, how else can I des describe it? Like if you've got your hand uh, out in front of your face like I do right now, and I've got my left hand kind of at a 45-degree angle... Uh, dipping in front of my face, and then if I just kind of drag my knuckles down, if I just allow my hand to relax from a 45 kind of rigid until I kind of relax my fingers and let my fingers kind of dangle, that's what we're trying to visualize for this Kula plate as it's subducting. It's rolling back. And the idea is, you, as you relax those fingers, and I'm do, again, I'm doing this in front of my face, if I, if I relax those fingers, there's more and more of a window to allow the hot mantle below my fingers to kind of surge up towards the surface and generate some shallow crustal melts and create some different chemistries and apparently some gold and other precious metals uh, during that chalice time. Well, it gets even more interesting because 4 million years later, at 49 million years ago, the Kula breaks again. So if I'm using my fingers in front of my face, I'm going to somehow, 49 million years ago, I'm going to sever my fingers with the rest of my hand. And those four fingers are just going to um, sink uh, into the uh, stenosphere. And I'm going to have another window or another time where my, uh, I'm creating a window or a gap between my fingers that have dismembered themselves from the rest of my hand. Well, this is getting gruesome. And that one I do know a little bit more about because though that helps explain. This is Tepper's model now. But he's got a very specific set of volcanic rocks, part of the chalice magmas, that are pretty close to Ellensburg. And so I want to learn more. I'm still a little bit fuzzy on these guys, but this is something called Tepper calls the breakoff belt. So this second um, break of the Kula plate 49 million years ago allows a new batch of Eocene magmas to come up to the surface. 
I'm looking at a map now of what Tepper calls the break-off belt volcanics within this bigger picture of the chalice magmas. Who are the 49-million-year-old break-off belt dudes? The Tianaway Basalt, the Natchez Formation, the Basalt of Frost Mountain, the Basalt of Summit Creek, Barlow Pass Volcanics, Bald Mountain Batholith, Mount Pilchuck Stock, and the Oso Volcanics. So I know about just a few of those very well. The rest of them I've barely heard of. But the point is we've got these rocks that are pretty much in Kittitas County where I live, uh, in the upper Kittitas County. And then we're kind of shooting over Snoqualmie Pass and heading uh, kind of west of Stevens Pass and then up towards Oso, where the tragic Oso landslide happened a few years ago. Wow. So there's things happening regionally from the Black Hills of South Dakota all the way out here to the Washington coast. And there's things happening very, very locally involving gold and blue agates just north of town. Uh, that's why I'm really having a lot of fun with this particular uh, set of stories. So could I call this the demise of the Kula Plate? Yeah, I think I can, and I think I will, because I'm realizing it's this, you know, my hand in front of my face. That was the Kula doing all this stuff instead of the Farallon. But just to the south of my hand breaking up twice is the Farallon Plate. You know, by the time we get to this, this window of time, no pun intended, uh, we do have the Farallon Plate in the neighborhood because of that northward migration of the spreading ridge. And so by the time we're done with this chalice magma story, it truly is the Farallon Plate that is subducting to create the Cascades. And the leftover piece of the Farallon Plate is the Juan de Fuca Plate, which we still know today as a relatively small plate. So there's, there's more specifics in my head now, which I'm pleased to report. I need to learn more about the break-off belt. I don't know if there'll be another podcast episode for this, too. Remember, we did three of the Brett's things because I was deep in the Brett zone. I'm kind of getting out of the, uh, I'm kind of on the tail, tail end of this Kula uh, chalice magma zone because I feel like I've, I've got the feedback I need. I've got the general story for the lecture and putting the slides together shouldn't be too much of a problem. I'll be recording this episode, by the way, on April 8th, and that's coming up, but I'm, I'm feeling much better about this than, than I was before. And, uh, you know, there's, there's temptations to go even further afield. Uh, the sweep of magmas, there's a whole nother sweep of these magmas through Nevada and going down further south. Uh, presumably with a similar rollback of some ocean plate. I, I, now that I think about it, I don't even know what that was. Um, but, you know, this is a Pacific Northwest series, both in lectures and public talks and, and podcasts. I'm, I'm excited to, uh, to put that together. I'll finish with this. Uh, Tepper, I've gotten to know a little bit recently. I like him a lot, and I respect what he does. And he hasn't published a lot. I've heard from some of you, like, I, I, I was excited about Tepper's work, and I went to go find some of his papers, and I'm not finding anything. Well, he's mostly been teaching at this liberal arts university, University of Puget Sound, and so he's got a few uh, posters that he's presented at meetings, and that's how I caught wind of this. And he's working on a paper that presumably will be out uh, 
among general consumption within the next couple of years. Uh, but much of this is, is kind of behind the scenes, I must say. However, since I've gotten to know Tepper, uh, he said last summer, uh, actually last spring, about a year ago now, he said, uh, yeah, I'm teaching my igneous uh, petrology class again this fall. This would be the fall of 2019. And we need to uh, continue with my story here with these magmas, with these chalice magmas. He didn't call it that, but anyway, I'm calling it that. He said, do you have any um, tips for where we could go? And I said, you know what? I think I do. Um, there's a couple of beautiful landmarks just, just above Wenatchee, Washington, that I don't think anybody's really carefully worked on. And after reading a fair amount before I uh, sent him that way, uh, I realized that there was significant work back in the 1970s and the early 1980s by Randall Greshens, who tragically died in a plane crash with Bates McKee in, uh, in the Wenatchee area in the early 80s. That's another story for another day. But anyway, in the last 30-plus years, there really hasn't much done. There, there hasn't been much work done on Castle Rock, Saddle Rock, um, another set of spires called the Stimilt Spires uh, above Wenatchee. And I know enough to know that those landmarks are part of this chalice story. So I'm finishing this episode by saying that any day now we're going to hear from a laboratory that has um, worked with some zircons that Jeff and I collected. So one of the hottest days of last summer, after I was back in Washington after uh, many weeks in Wisconsin last summer, um, Jeff and I finally got together and spent a full day uh, screwing around over there in Wenatchee and hiking up on Saddle Rock and Castle Rock those two in particular. And uh, he collected, he had his sledgehammer with him. He collected some very um, important samples, important meaning uh, good-looking samples that he felt confident he could get some zircons from. And my point is, uh, in the next few days, we're going to get results on the chemistry and the ages of Castle Rock and Saddle Rock at Wenatchee, Washington. And it would be fun if those brand-new dates would fit into this sweep story and this break-off belt story, perhaps, and basically have a couple more data points for this emerging story. Uh, Mike Eddy, who I mentioned briefly, who's now at Purdue, uh, has done a lot of work with the accretion of Celestia. We haven't even talked about Celestia so far in this episode. That's a big part of this story, which I guess we'll leave alone. Uh, but Eddie is continuing with getting high-precision dates on many of these plutons, and he'll be working in the North Cascades with a little bit older stuff, but um, uh, it, it's helpful, I, I think, to be um, uh, in the neighborhood, not only geographically but time-wise, with what uh, Eddie might be doing in the next few years if his NSF grant comes through. Hey, listener, you made it to the end of this one. I, I don't, I've got a, a dry throat, so I don't think I'm going to sing for you today. I'm not sure I'm ever going to sing for you again. But anyway, you made it to the end of this one. I sure do appreciate it. Actually, I've heard from a number of you that you do listen to the very end of these episodes, and I certainly didn't mean for everybody to report and say, yeah, I really do listen. But for those that did, thank you for, for checking in, and so glad that you're 
enjoying these podcasts. Apparently, uh, people are, are receiving these properly, listening to these with joy and reverence to the science of geology. What a weird ending to a hopefully interesting, complicated episode. Goodbye.